to Not Safe Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Jess. I'm Anna. And today we have Abby. Hiya, I'm Abby. I'm a second year PhD student in Salk at the University of Manchester. Thank you. Do you want to tell us a bit about your research, Abby? Uh, yeah, in Anna's words, just before we started the podcast, it's, um, I mean, I look at olden times. I look at old English literature, so from around about the 10th century, and I approach it from an eco-critical perspective. So my basic question is, how did people conceptualise and negotiate their place in the world um, at times of real or imagined environmental crisis? What does eco-critical mean? Oh, for God's sake, you had to ask me that, didn't you? Um, yeah, so this is its kind of a massive area of critical theory that's sprung up since about the 1970s. And there are loads of different definitions, and I guess broadly you'd say that eco-critics are always concerned with the non-human world, human relationships to the non-human world. Uh, they're concerned with kind of how um, different groups are situated or displaced. Um, and I would say, although um, some eco-critics would disagree with me, I would say that it's always an inherently political enterprise. You know, I think it's it's easy for, um, well, I've, I've read quite a lot of um, purported eco-criticism, which is basically just like looking for trees in poems. And that's not it. There always has to be, I think, this sense of, um, of the political dimension of the relationship between humans and the non-human environments that sustain them. What about kind of eco-crisis what kind of eco-crisis is there that you're dealing with in this period oh so most of it is quite localized which i find really interesting because something that's um that comes into play in my research is the idea of localism and how that's an emerging concern in lots of environmental movements um the idea that perhaps we can't address it ourselves on a global scale and so then the local and the regional are kind of going to have to come in but in the 10th century what I'm talking about is on the one hand localised environmental crisis such as crop failures or um, one of the texts I was working on for a while dealt with how a beekeeper would cope with their bees flying away and that might sound quite like whimsical to us now um, but you can imagine that if you've got one apiary which provides the sugar intake of a community and the like is a key ingredient in like honey is a key ingredient in lots of early medieval medicine um, and so if your bees fly away you're basically fucked um, and so this charm that might seem quite funny to us deals with a proper localized environmental crisis and then on the other hand you've got the imagined crisis of apocalypse um, and there was a lot of sort of millenarian anxiety around um, from the mid-10th century to the mid-11th century, kind of centred around the year 1000. And something I'm looking at in my thesis is how that apocalypse is often figured in terms of local environmental disaster, mm. which I find quite interesting. So did you come from this, and like I probably should know this, but did you come from <laughs> this from you having a heightened awareness of environmental issues in, in your personal life? I think it's one of those things that kind of self-perpetuates and that's why even though I'm working as a like as a medievalist and so in one sense my work is very removed from sort of the present um, being an eco-critic it does sort of open you up to just horror upon horror because um, I kind of feel compelled to read um, and need to read for my work need to read a lot of um, environmental critical theory and a lot of it's just so depressing mm. um, and so in a sense I was interested in the theory not having much kind of knowledge I found it in like my second year of undergrad 
So I didn't have much knowledge of like radical environmental movements or whatever <laughs> at that point. And then got really interested in the theory. And then I sort of reached a point about a year ago um, where I was like, okay, I'm consuming all of this frightening and depressing literature. I need to now do something in my personal life to to kind of deal with that. So in a way, it's the other way around to what you were suggesting. Um, and then uh, at that point, I was lucky enough to meet um, our friends, George and Phil, mm. um, and they set up their State Violence Research Network, which looks at kind of um, radical movements in relation to um, the state um, and state violence in all its forms. Um, and they suggested that I set up an environmental violence strand of that. And mm. so that's been kind of a way that um, it's sort of bled into my personal life in quite a productive way, I think. Yeah. Because um, otherwise, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book at the minute and I've been reading it for about a month. It's only short, but I can't finish it. It's called um, uh, The Uninhabitable Earth. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just a series of statistics about how fucked we are. Like that's it for three hundred pages. Um, and so, uh, yeah, to be able to do something about it and not feel completely helpless is quite important. Yeah, I think like sometimes you can fall into the trap of just like really caring about these things in an academic perspective, but then like not really wanting to do anything in your mm. outside life. And I think that's a lot like some of the criticisms people make about academia is that you're just too invested in the subject and not the real world oh yeah in an entirely abstract way sitting (laughs) up here in our ivory towers it's like no there's reason that like i was drawn to eco-critical theory and it is like as i say it's because it's it's inherently political but also yeah you're right um your politics can't be confined to research that realistically i mean you know if i don't continue on in academia after my phd a total of four people are going to read my thesis, um, so it, it kind of needs to extend me out. Me being one that. of them, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you can prove it for me. So, did you come at medieval eco theory from the place of oh, I'm interested in eco criticism and I want to look at something, and then there is this interesting medieval material, or was it you were looking at the Middle Ages and you thought, oh no. N- people don't talk enough about the relationship between human and nature um, and really from my understanding eco-history really begins and picks up from early modern times and there isn't that much about yeah, medieval relationship mm. with nature um, yeah so it was it was the first one you suggested so I got into eco-critical theory I did um, an undergrad degree in English literature and we didn't really so the earliest we went back in that was we could do a medieval paper which started in 30 1350 so that's kind of around about the time of Chaucer um, and that lot and I didn't really like it I I had no interest in in medieval stuff and I kind of didn't do very well in that paper when I was an undergrad Um, but then through reading fiction so contemporary fiction that drew on the early medieval period I then got super into it Um, so in a way I approached it not as someone who was interested in the Middle Ages or you know not as someone who liked medieval literature but as someone who liked what could be done with medieval literature that was it from the start Um, and so then when I came to do my masters I decided to go to the University of York because I knew that there I could learn medieval languages and kind of like get that basis because I knew that there was something interesting there and I knew that the kind of 10th century was where I needed to be looking um, but I didn't have the kind of skills to be able to do that yet. So, um, yeah, my master's was kind of a crash course in all of the medieval languages, which was a lot of fun. So you speak Old English? Like, I, I read it, because um, it's weird. It's weird learning a language that no one speaks anymore. Um, like yeah, Latin. 
<laughs> yeah, oh god, I hate Latin. Um, I like, I'm a bad medievalist. I'm just like I really resist learning Latin. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of uh, whenever I get the opportunity to speak old English, I do because it's funny. And my because I'm teaching now, and my students like it when I occasionally drop a word in in old English, and they're like, oh, that sounds weird. And yeah, it does. And that's kind of one of the fun things I think about teaching on the early medieval period is that it is just a bit weird like an old english is an old language mm. so what kind of texts are you using um i am kind of going like non-canonical um so there's uh by which you mean <laughs> by which i mean um not the poems that you would have heard of so okay. most of the old english texts that you know people would have heard of stuff like beowulf yeah. Um, and then if you're like a bit deeper in, you'd get to um, a series of elegiac poems. So like the Wanderer, the Seafarer, these are all like kind of household names to medievalists. But I'm turning away from all of those and looking at texts that conventionally aren't thought of as being literary texts. Um, the one exception to that is the charms, the Old English charms, which I've been looking yeah. at. So those are kind of like spoken sort of um, responses to problems in the non-human world and they're great, they're so much fun, um, they're bonkers. But now I've turned to Regation Tide homilies and Regation Tide is an Old English um, feast, so a bit like Easter, it's a movable feast. Um, happens every year on the three days before Ascension Thursday and there are loads of homilies that were written um, to be recited on Regation days. But the thing that I like about um, about Regation Tide is that it was characterised not only by going to church and hearing these homilies and being preached at, but you would go on these boundary walks every single day um, during this period. And so the even though we call them we call it Regation Tide, and that comes from the Latin regara, meaning to pray, so prayer days. Uh, in Old English, they were called gangdagas, so like walking days. So <laughs> Sorry, that's such a funny word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I say, it's a weird language. Um, but yeah, so so they they kind of like thought of them as days to go walking on. So I'm interested in that relationship between like the the text and the like ritual which took them out into the world. Yeah. How did those sources end up being? written down because especially charm sounds like it's mostly oral culture yeah yeah so this is an interesting thing and i say you know i focus on the 10th century but both, most of my texts were just written down in the 10th century so we don't know for how long before that they were being recited and there are people who kind of you know devote their academic lives to researching the kind of um i mean there's a debate that's like been raging for decades and it will go on raging long after i'm dead but um when was Beowulf composed? And like, I'm, I'm just kind of of the opinion that like, it, do, it doesn't matter. You know, we have, we have the manuscript, which is from the 10th century. Like, let's just, um, or early 11th. Oh God, I've probably got that wrong. It doesn't matter. Um, but that's, that's my opinion anyway. But yeah, so most of my texts were, um, were orally performed. Um, and then they were written down later. Um, but yeah, that's a massive point that I have to make in my thesis. Is like I think the the fact of these texts being written down and being included in anthologies has kind of changed the way we interpret them. Um, so a big point that I make in my chapter is kind of like these aren't sort of orders barked at the natural world. It's actually kind of half of a dialogue mm. with the natural world, and it's just that only one half of that survives in written form. Um, so yeah, it's 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 odd kind of having to negotiate. It's weird in medieval literature, you sort of have to proper go back to basics and think about, okay, I'm used to reading texts. What does reading mean in this context? Mm. And what is a text in this context? Um, and the answer is never simple. I guess also there's that mistake of like, we've written it down as this, 
but it also sounds like this so could it also mean this does that make sense yeah yeah you do get quite a lot of um like polysemous words so words that have multiple meanings um, mm. and in my regation tide homilies actually yeah there's um a lot of homilists who seem to to play with that the fact that a word written down can you know seem to mean a definite thing but when it's spoken aloud there is that kind of um shifting meaning um so one of the words that um the homilies will often use is tillian which means so we get the modern english till from it so like to till the soil but they also use it to mean kind of to strive to do better and so you know you kind of have to think then maybe those two senses are interlinked maybe there's something um about working the earth which is inherently kind of like moral or good according mm. to the sort of moral framework posited by this homily um but yeah it's, it's confusing <laughs> and also makes you think about old english ponds yeah yeah it really does ponds. Um, yeah i've always said ponds okay yeah ponds. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah no no old english puns spring to mind immediately <laughs> but i'm sure there are there are lots of them how have you found kind of working with your supervisors in this sort of thing yeah i mean it's terrifying um i i love them both they're both great but they're both like frighteningly good um so one of my supervisors is um a specialist in old english and the way he kind of speaks about and writes about the language is just astounding like he he manages to speak about it so poetically that you get that real sense of of what old english was as a as a poetic language so that's just awesome and i can't believe i've got the opportunity to work with him and then on the other hand my um my other supervisor she she's actually a later medievalist so mm. she works on stuff about 400 years after mine but she's got this brilliant theoretical mind and so obviously it's amazing getting in like going to chat with them once every couple of weeks um it's an amazing opportunity but i also do just feel like a bit of a blithering idiot in supervisions but i guess that's understandable yeah. do you guys feel that all the time yeah yeah <laughs> just part of the experience isn't it? we saw that really good tweet did you post that tweet and oh, no, it was Anne. we have a, a history facebook group and Anne posted a tweet saying like friends and family of phd students think they're overachievers but all phd students think they're massive imposters <laughs> and it's so true like yeah, yeah. everyone around you thinks like, oh my god you're doing a phd it's like yeah but i'm not very good <laughs> no i mean one of the best moments of my life happened a few weeks ago i was um because i'm teaching this term so i went along to one of the lectures and I was sitting next to this you know first year undergrad who and like you know I certainly remember when I was an undergrad I didn't have a clue how a university worked and so I sort of I can see where the student got this from they clearly thought that anyone who is a teacher at a university is a professor but also I don't think he really knew what a professor was but um he sat down next to me and he was like oh hi I'm so and so I'm you know I'm a first year and I was like oh hi I'm Abby I actually teach on this course and he was like oh cool cool so you're a professor then and I so wanted to just like live in that moment and just be like yes yes I am but I had to admit like no no I'm a lowly worm <laughs> have you found teaching medieval to undergrads so good like unexpectedly great um and teaching was one of the things i was most looking forward to about doing a phd and the first week i was a bit terrified because i had two groups and one of the groups just seemed like super into it straight away and the other group just didn't seem interested at all and i kind of can blame them because you know as i said like i, I disliked medieval stuff when i was an undergrad um and so um but over the weeks they've just got really into it um a couple of girls in one of my classes came in last week and they'd had a movie night 
um, to watch the 2007 adaptation of Beowulf. <laughs> With um, Angelina Jolie. Was that Angelina Jolie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh my God, it's so funny. The, the description of the film that you get if you Google it is... Um, so like Grendel's mum in, in Beowulf is like this terrifying monster who beheads... Um, Beowulf's advisor like you know she's she's a horror she's great um, and she's played by Angelina Jolie in the film um, and if you google it it describes her as being as horrifying as she is seductive and <laughs> I, yeah I love it so much it's an excellent film that's good because I'm I'm teaching modern British history now so 19th century British history and like I really love it but I never thought it'd be one of those subjects like medieval history that I'd have to try and really mm. I thought most students would want to know about this sort of thing and now I feel like I'm like constantly like shaking their shoulders every week, like, this is really important stuff you need to know. <laughs> this isn't like medieval history. And then, like, yeah, here we like... Oi. Yeah, no, it's a joke, it's a joke. But, like, the engagement is different than what I thought it would be. Mm. Yeah, I think certainly there is a certain... And, and I think part of it is the fact that we are quite a bit older than the undergrads are. So there is also, because I teach modern Chinese history, mm. and there are things that I just expect them to know, like, mm. you know, what's happening in Hong Kong, or what's happening in, in Xinjiang, or mm. like, you know, things that we are sort of aware of just because, well, they are on the news feeds. That's what mm. people our age talk about a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and it's very different for them. And I had a seminar where I was like, OK, so what's the relevance of those events? And we were talking about the Opium War. And okay. I thought Hong Kong will be the first thing that they talk about. Mm. And they just didn't. They just couldn't come up with it. Um, and yeah. that was very interesting and strange. Yeah. yeah, and then you start to question where, where you get your own knowledge from. I, I, we were speaking about um, kind of 19th century versions of poor relief. And it was actually a really good summer now and everyone was really like engaged with it. But I was thinking, do they even know what welfare, like what a welfare system is? And like, you start to question, how old was I when I knew about that sort of thing? And you're right. And also, you've got to remember that we are kind of of the few who really loved university probably from quite an early, yeah. well, from, kind of from straight away. So it's slightly, you can't expect everyone to be as engaged as you are. Yeah, and I guess what you were saying, Anna, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it, like, and like you were saying, Jess, we've sort of been caught up in the university system for a good few years now. But it reminds you that when you're an undergrad, actually, much of what university is about is about learning to pay attention and learning to make connections. And like, you know, the fact that they're not doing that yet is a reminder, isn't it? That like, oh yeah, I'm sure that actually, when I was 18, I wasn't doing that either. Um, but yeah, that's something I love about the, the medieval module as well, is I can basically say to them, like, I assume that you have no knowledge. Like, let's all start from a complete level mm. playing field. And that's kind of the opposite of how it was when I was an undergraduate, which is why I didn't like it so much, because, you know, a load of people in the room had, you know, a load of kind of classical knowledge and knowledge of Latin, and the lecturers would kind of refer to that as though everyone in the room had it. But something that I really love about Manchester's course is, right, we're all starting from the ground. Um, and then we can kind of build that knowledge up week by week. So that's been a massive part of kind of my approach to teaching has just been like, if you if you don't know, ask, because chances are nobody else in the room knows either. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's weird, isn't it? The difference between teaching um, modern medieval stuff like that you don't think yeah. about. We often ask, you know, anything, any funny stories about what you come <laughs> across during your research. So is there anything you can want to tell us that might be quite humorous? 
Well, I've got like a really sort of base one to start with, um, mm. which is just that, so obviously I work on Old English and I work on like the non-human world. So I come across quite a lot of like landscape terms. And this is just, it's such a stupid one, but one of the Old English words for like land or field is wang. Um, <laughs> I, like it's so daft, I don't deserve to be doing a PhD, but every time I read it, I laugh. And then sometimes you'll get it in a compound, which is like wang turf, which just means field again. Um, oh, but I did find this morning that wang beard means whisker. So that's that's a fun fact wang for everyone. Bit, like beard, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah wang yeah, beard. So funny. Um, but yeah, I don't know why the wang comes into it there. So I'll have to do some research. That's so great. Um, yeah, or if you get, um, I don't know, like a, a, um, a critic you're reading who's, oh, this is a good one. So the... Um, the charms when I was working on them there they were collected in an anthology that was published in like I don't know 1920 odd um, and the anthology was edited by two fellows called Crap and Dobby um, which I, I did struggle with I'll be honest um, yeah I did, did laugh at quite a lot. Have you found that kind of during your research into environmental stuff that you've you found other I'm kind of interested in how people go in with one approach so let's say it's mm. kind of eco-criticism and then veer off and find other themes that they weren't quite interested in so we were speaking to Jamie the other day he looks at medical history but trying to find out if there's anything else he can gauge in relation to kind of child history and gender history have you found that through your research I guess because I'm very like literary in focus so I suppose the thing that I've ended up focusing on which I'd sort of overlooked is kind of what I was saying earlier the like the nature of text and like how we think about literature in the Middle Ages. And I actually think like a massive part of my thesis, maybe a central bit, is gonna be a reassessment or an attempted rethinking of medieval literature. And some of that is gonna be through kind of introducing into my literary study texts that have previously been kind of thought of as like purely documentary texts. And then there's me going like, hello, I think they're poetry. Um, <laughs> So, so I guess that the another sort of theoretical field I'm I'm encroaching on is going to be the idea of literature itself. Can I ask? Do you know any of the authors of your texts? No. Oh. Um, yeah, they're all they're all anonymous. Um, and and also the idea of kind of authorship is in itself. This is again what I'm saying about having to really go back to basics with with medieval stuff. Is we think about an author as like the one person who thought up a text and then kind of typed it out and then got it published, mm. right? Um, but if you're thinking about medieval texts, you've got the people, or more likely, um, well, the person, or more likely people who came up with them over time. Mm. And then at some point, maybe 100, maybe 200, maybe 300 years later, a scribe who wrote it down. And then you've got the archivist or the collector who kind of like discovered it and put it in their library several hundred years after that. Then you've got the editors mm -hmm. and then you've got the readers. Um, and so I kind of like to think of it as like, well, there's not one author. We're all kind of, and this is me being a kind of reader response theory person, but like we're all participating in the formation of this text all the time. Um, it's a bit like if you, like one of the charms, for example, a good sort of analogue to that would be a nursery rhyme. Okay. We don't think of nursery oh, yeah. rhymes as having authors. They just get passed on and it would be impossible to trace them back to like, you know, the person who made it up. Yeah. They do know who wrote Happy Birthday to You, though. Ooh. But it was Amazing. apparently, so it was like an American school teacher who wrote it as a morning greeting and it was good morning to all. But oh. then the, um, the melody really stuck. So it became a thing and everyone now sings it at 
birthdays. Yeah, and it's you can speak it in several different languages. <laughs> um, and, and you're not allowed to um, sing it in TV or use it in TV programmes because the rights to it are really expensive. What? Yeah, isn't this a thing? I'm scared now that it's going to be an urban legend, <laughs> but like you know how you get people singing like for He's a Jolly Good Fellow or whatever in TV shows yeah. and, and in film. That's because the rights to Happy Birthday are super expensive. So that Stevie Wonder wrote Happy Birthday to you as well. <laughs> so with charms, were they spells? Because when you say charms, I'm like Harry Potter. Is it the same? Is it the same? Um, okay, so this is this is kind of like a thing that's been written on a lot. I actually um, wrote a book review. Um, I wrote my first book review, guys. It's super exciting. Um, but of a book called Charms, Liturgies and Secret Rites in early medieval England. And like, that's a cracking title, isn't it? Like, you'd want to read that book. Um, but it's by a guy called Kieran Arthur who was basically saying like, we've called them charms for far too long and the connotations of sort of like witchcraft um, and paganism are, are inappropriate to the texts. And his whole book is kind of arguing that these are Christian texts, inherently Christian texts that were recited in a Christian context. And so they actually had nothing to do with pagan witchcraft um, or pagan sorcery. And I'm kind of broadly inclined to agree with him. Like I agree that like Christianity was the predominant kind of like framework in which you would have understood things in the 10th century. But unfortunately, it's one of those things where that's just what we call them. And that's mm. just what we've called them for a good long while now. And so much of the scholarship, like mine, much of the scholarship on the charms, which uses the word charm, isn't implying anything magical about them in that sense but then you get to the problem of like well do we just now like come up with a new term for them and I was sort of hoping that in that book Kieran Arthur would propose <laughs> a new term for them because then I would happily have adopted it um, unfortunately he didn't he just refers to them as charms in inverted commas the whole way through the book which oh, like on the one hand yeah and it's, like, it's such a lovely book but it makes the whole argument just seem quite like snarky um and also like give me another term to use and then i'll use it but yeah so there's there's a big debate about whether they're sort of magic or not i don't think they are and again i would say that rather than being these um texts that were used to exert human power over the non-human world i think they represent kind of part of a conversation mm. between human and non-human that's how i'd conceptualize them it's always funny kind of talking to non-medievalists and remembering all of those <laughs> preconceptions um, yeah so like i don't know would you have thought that like people were using magic and stuff in in around about the 10th century well i don't know because i do actually know oh yeah you're a you're well, a good I did medievalist but i also a, a old teacher of mine has literally just written a book on modern witchcraft like witchcraft in 19th century britain mm. but that whole thing about belief in magic is i find it really hard to engage with because i don't believe in magic and so when i think about did other did people in the past believe in magic i really struggle but maybe that's just my mindset about trying to think back that far yeah I guess. it is it is odd isn't it mm. now i'm thinking about it there is actually one of the charms which is it's called akabot and it's a it's a charm for kind of unfruitful land and it says at the beginning this is a charm for um uh, when your fields won't grow or if anything's been done to them by sorcerers and so that's a charm that's clearly kind of like expressing some kind of belief that there are supernatural forces that might interfere with your crops mm. but also the majority of the charm is like um consists of christian ritual so like you have to kind of recite the paternoster and, and all of that stuff so so yeah there's clearly this kind of melding of belief yeah. there and then it's interesting is that a belief in magic or is it just a way of expressing, I mean, maybe this is what magic is, is mm. it a way of expressing and formulating and conceptualising forces that you 
can't see. Yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting. I do think that difference between religion and magic is often quite blurred, especially when it comes to religious practice as opposed mm. to kind of theoretical, hardcore religion, very theological approaches to it, mm. um, when there, you come at it from perspective of there are things which are Christian and there are things that are not Christian mm. and that there is a this particular divide and I think very much charms seem to be in the middle because they do come from the standpoint of sorcery and magic does exist but they also do from from your description sound very Christian yeah yeah I think I think they fundamentally are very Christian but I think you're right in saying like these texts have kind of got caught up in the middle of a debate that's always been going on so I think one of the reasons they were called charms in the first place is that early scholars were kind of determined to find remnants of paganism in Christian England mm. um, and like you know now with kind of you know the benefit of decades of work on it we've kind of be able to come we've been able to come to a kind of nuanced conclusion which seems to check out right which is that Christianity didn't replace paganism overnight and actually the two tradi traditions sort of melded into one another mm. under the name of mainstream Christianity that right. just seems to be the most sensible conclusion and the most productive one as well I think because it gets us away from this sort of endless debate debate of people saying like they were pagan no they weren't they were Christian mm. when it's, it's sort of obvious that they they just are what they are and they functioned within the worldview that they had to function within because it doesn't really work as far, I think that's one takeaway I took from medieval history at BA level was that it just didn't happen yeah like you say it didn't happen overnight mm. Christ, uh, Christianization especially in those far reaches of Nordic society, it was quite hard for the Catholic Church to be extending their power that far. So it would make sense that kind of these charms were kind of under the guise of Christianity but were more about yeah, individual belief systems. <laughs> do, do you have anything else that you would like to share? Well, for anyone who is interested in well, interested in environmental activism or would just like to get involved or, you know, someone who's an eco-critic but who, like me, needs needs a real-world outlet for all of the thoughts they mm -hmm. have, I'd really um, encourage you to join the State Violence Research Network um, and then the environmentalism strand of that. We've got quite a few exciting activities coming up. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to Google SVRN. Um, and then for those of you who like Old English, I'd say come along to my reading group. Oh, which, yeah. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do an <laughs> Old English translation group. So that'll be a good chance to either learn Old English or improve your grammar or just spend some time with that some lovely like poetry. I need to brush up on my Old English. So <laughs> I will definitely be there. Don't joke. <laughs> um, well, thank you for coming, Abby. Oh, thank you very and much for having me. Don't worry. Um, make sure you subscribe and... As usual, what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Don't tell your supervisors what you heard here. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or get in touch with us by email at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.